Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today on Power Hour, we're going to talk to James Taylor, who's a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute. Um, We've discussed Heartland once or twice on this show before, um, but as we'll talk about during the interview, uh, it's, it's, I think, one of the most important organizations in America, and and I think it's taken a uniquely courageous stand on the climate issue um, and and really had a a discernible influence on that uh, for the better, including an influence on me. So we're going to talk to James about that, and then we're going to talk to him also about a recent article he wrote on what he calls EPA's uh, secret science. So we'll have um, a specific controversy, which is a very important controversy in its own right, but also a broader discussion of Heartland's involvement in the climate issue and how they've managed to move the needle um, and what can be done going forward. So should be a lot of fun. Stick around, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by James Taylor of the Heartland Institute. Uh, James, welcome to Power Hour. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Alex. So, you've written uh, lately, although we noticed this a couple months ago, but it's it's still definitely a relevant topic, uh, an article regarding something you call, or that other people call, EPA's secret science. What is EPA's secret science? Well, the Environmental Protection Agency uh, claims that it has a scientific justification for the many rules and restrictions that it imposes on the economy, power plants, etc., and the problem is EPA does not make their scientific data and their so-called in-depth scientific analysis available for outside scrutiny. And when I say outside scrutiny, I'm not talking about third-person troublemakers, independent watchdogs. Members of Congress have requested access to their procedures, to their data, etc. And EPA, although promising to provide it, never has. They refuse to do so. So what we're told to do is that we're merely supposed to trust EPA on its word that it is issuing these extremely costly and restrictive regulations out of concern for Americans' health and not out of concern for their own power, budgets, staffing, etc. And that's a tough pill to swallow. If the EPA indeed had nothing to hide, if they indeed had the data to back up their rules and restrictions, you'd think that they would be all too willing to share this information but they continue to keep it secret. Well, I would think that even even if it was you know, completely honest and well-motivated, you still want to know the... Th- these are complex issues that you would want to know the thought process behind and, and perhaps dispute. And, of course, we could talk about the whole issue of why the EPA is making all these decisions instead of Congress uh, in the first place. But insofar as it is, what's what's the argument against... Uh, transparency, given that this is a government agency and given that the legislative branch is, is asking for information that, at least to me, seems reasonable to ask, more than reasonable to ask for. 
Right, and uh, essentially the argument against transparency is not presented. It's basically silence. The most that EPA has done is they've said that some of the data that they use, in particular, uh, my article focused especially on EPA's fine particulate matter restrictions, uh, in other words, soot. And uh, essentially EPA claims that there are two studies, known as the Six City Study and the American Cancer Society Study that indicate a correlation between fine particulate matter levels and mortality and death rates. Uh, but when asked to present the underlying data, uh, EPA says uh, when they finally do come out of their silent shell, they say, well, we don't have access to the data because that was uh, these studies were performed by the authors themselves. Now, that's rather troubling because, of course, people publish studies all the time, and the studies certainly uh, are, uh, are, are helpful in the scientific debate. But in order to say these are conclusively accurate, you need to be able to replicate them. And folks who have science, I, I say folks colloquially, scientists who have examined these studies have pointed out flaws. Even the authors themselves have said, well, these aren't as definitive as uh, EPA and environmental access claim. For example, in the Six City study, they found a correlation uh, among fine particulate matter and mortality among people with high school educations and lower, but not with people who are uh, higher educated than that. They found correlations in the western part of the United States, but not in the eastern part of the United States. Now, there's nothing about living in the eastern part of the United States that makes a person uh, biologically, physiologically less susceptible to fine particulate matter. When you have these discrepancies, it tells you that perhaps perhaps the methodology is flawed. You're getting subsets, you're getting other factors involved. And then similarly, you had for the American Cancer Society study, again, you found that uh, for people with more than a high school degree, you did not have this correlation. And they found that people who were moderately active, there was a correlation between fine particulate matter and mortality, but not for people who were either very active or sedentary. And also, let me just go back for a moment to the Six Cities study. What was real interesting there was that they also found uh, a decrease in mortality due to respiratory causes uh, as particulate matter levels rose. So that was contradictory to the overall assertions by EPA. So what you have are two studies that uh, seem to have uh, quite a few methodological flaws that perhaps if you're saying that we need to justify these very costly restrictions based on their findings, you're seeing findings that really appear to be cherry-picked. So you have subsets of the population for which you can find correlation, you have other subsets where you don't have correlation, and you have other subsets where you have reverse correlation. And given that, I think it's very important that scientists be able to access the actual data, to look at the procedures, the methods, and figure out whether this means something or not. And EPA says, no, we're not going to give it to you. Yeah, and I would add just that as a member of the public, uh, it's something that, that I want to be informed on. Now, I've uh, studied the issue just quite a bit on my own, just out of you know, professional interest. But it's, it's important, I think, for instance, with any scientific discipline, and this certainly goes into the whole issue of climate, for, for people to know even what's, this, what's the state of knowledge, what's the ability to trace something like a certain kind of particulate matter from a coal plant to human health. And often there is no such uh, ability. And all that we have are these uh, caricature pictures of how things work. So the coal plant allegedly is emitting all this smoke, which is, by the way, steam, and somehow that's getting into our lungs, and somehow that's making us sick. And just this very distorted viewpoint versus recognizing you know, you're dealing with t relatively tiny amounts of stuff that, in most cases, people can't uh, 
can't show, and that, that should be known to the public, and, and certainly the methodology shouldn't be, oh, just trust the experts, and if we make your energy twice as expensive, then don't worry, it's science. Right. A couple points here that, that are called to mind by your comments, very good comments. First of all, um, it, these aren't the only two studies that address the topic. It's not like, well, we have two studies, and they seem to indicate a correlation with mortality, and perhaps we haven't dug in deeply enough, but that gives us reason to say better safe than sorry. In fact, there was a peer-reviewed uh, study published in a journal called Inhalation Toxicology, so very specific to this field, peer-reviewed. UCLA research professor James Enstrom uh, uh, wrote, the wrote, the, wrote on the study, uh, and, and he found that in a survey of nearly 50,000 people exposed to fine particulate matter uh, from 1973 through 2002, uh, there was essentially no correlation between fine particulate matter and mortality. So you have a, a study that EPA just ignores. They only go with the two studies that if you interpret them a certain way by looking at only certain subsets of the study and don't look at the methodology or background data, that you can assert the means, that you can assert the justification for these restrictions. And when you talk about the costs, it's real interesting. Uh, EPA frequently, when they estimate the advanced costs or report after the fact on the cost of their regulations and restrictions and rules, they, they tend to understate the costs. But even, even taking EPA at its own estimate, so that no one can say, well, you know, this is a dis dispute between these numbers and EPA's numbers. For example, look, taking EPA at its own numbers, uh, just in, in terms of rules that they have proposed uh, just, since, uh, just, just since 2010, 2010 or 2011, you're looking at restrictions that would add $1,000 per household per year. This is by EPA's own numbers. They, they, they talk about limits on ozone that will cost taxpayers $90 billion per year. There are 100 million households in the country. You can do the math. So by EPA's own numbers, there are new restrictions on ozone. would be $900 per household per year. Now, there is a value. There is a value to cleaner air. And even if we're not sure about the medical effects, I mean, there is some value to it. But there are also costs, and we have to weigh the costs and the benefits. Do we want to spend every last penny tracking down every last molecule of air pollution? If that were the case, we never would have uh, made the determination to cook food with fires early in human in history, we would have just eaten the, eaten the, uh, the meat raw. But is it really worth $1,000 per household per year for additional ozone restrictions when emissions have already declined by more than 70% in the past 30 years? I think our air is clean enough right now that if we're going to require more restrictions, they have to come at a lesser cost than this. Yeah, and, and the, my only suspicion about cost estimates is that they always seem uh, much, much too low particularly when we're presented this alternative of so-called renewables, which I think are better called unreliables, uh, as, as a replacement. Because if all of this is headed in, in that direction, you're talking about an almost incalculable amount of damage because you're damaging the very foundation of, of the productivity of your nation. Right. And, and here are a couple more thoughts that come to mind. Um, I attended a conference a couple years ago uh, was conducted by a legislative group, and there were uh, EPA people in attendance. And I presented some data showing that when EPA had uh, issued uh, uh, rules, regulations, and uh, required states to comply with them when they had in advance estimated their costs. And then afterwards, studies were done to look at whether the costs were within what EPA had, uh, had guessed, had estimated. And the vast majority of the uh, rules and regulations cost significantly more than EPA had claimed. 
And I brought up that, and I brought up a couple other uh, points, uh, information such as what I just presented about uh, EPA's reliance on these questionable studies. And the arrogance of the EPA folks, there's one in particular, a, a rather high-ranking EPA official, who said, well, you know, this is just the word of a think tank staffer who, you know, who, who doesn't really know his stuff because it is impossible for us at EPA to make a mistake. And I said, what? And they said, because we have the best scientists in the world and we study everything, we cannot make any errors. Everything that we have put out is 100% accurate. For anybody to believe that, I mean, Einstein was not 100% accurate. Einstein sometimes said, you know what, this is my proposed theory, it turned out to be wrong. For EPA to really believe that it doesn't make any errors, that it's not subject to outside oversight, even from congressmen, this tells us something that's very troubling. And then also a second point that, that uh, came to mind here was that just uh, two years ago, I was at a conference, so this is in uh, early 2012, uh, at, it was the Energy, Utility, and Environment Conference, and Gina McCarthy, who is now the head of EPA, back then she was EPA's number two, uh, she gave a talk, and then she also held a press conference afterwards. And she talked about the, the, the immense economic savings that EPA's clean air restrictions uh, were allegedly uh, providing to the American people. And a quote that she said after, you know, after citing hundreds of billions of dollars in alleged uh, economic benefits, she said, if you're worried about whether this will benefit the economy, read those figures. But here's the thing. First of all, when EPA talks about how they're going to save all this money, they're relying upon the questionable findings of the six cities and American Cancer Society studies, or more accurately, their interpretation of the findings. But just as importantly, EPA, what they do is when they come across with these asserted economic uh, uh, benefits, they're not economic benefits. They're more societal human value benefits from a very subjective and biased source. What EPA does is they ask people, how much is it worth to you to live longer? Well, you know, if, if, if you're not putting your own money on the line, if you're asked subjectively, oh, hmm, how much is it worth to live longer? Well, considering life is basically the, uh, the, the, the most important thing we have, people are going to say, oh, $100 million, whether they have it or not. But anyway, using subjective questions like that, EPA claims that every time that it extends a life, even by a little bit, even by a few days, it connotes a value of $9.1 million. Most people don't earn $9.1 million. Wait, wait, for, for, how, for how long? No, well, that, that's just that's, that's how much the value that they have added to the economy, they say. But, uh, but of any extension long, of life? Any extension of life. And when you look at, these, when you look at the asserted uh, benefits in terms of mortality tied to the Six City study, the American Cancer Society study, what you're looking at is primarily older people, people who are in poor health. These are people who, if you do have any correlation, you're extending lives on average by hours, perhaps days at the most. But EPA will, will data mine cherry pick and then say every time they've extended a life, even by a short time like that, they have added $9.1 million to the economy. They haven't added it to the economy. They've added it to so-called societal benefits, but even those are highly questionable. And when I pressed her further to, to say, well, how can you, can, can you tell me how you arrive at that figure, especially considering every other federal agency places the value of a human life extended at less than $9.1 million. And, of course, you know, for example, for the Department of Transportation, if they save someone from dying in a car crash, they say that they've, uh, that they've added a value of $6 million. Well, people who die in car crashes are all across the age spectrum. People who are saved by EPA regulations tend to be older. So really, you're adding more life when DOT saves a life than EPA, yet EPA says it's creating 50% more value than a Department of Transportation life saved. 
But anyway, when I pressed Gina McCarthy about that and asked her specifically, you know, more specifically, can you tell us how you arrived at that formula, she said she, quote, can't answer the question, but she did assure me, and this should make all our listeners feel good, she said the EPA, quote, works in close consultation with the White House, end quote, to arrive at the figure. So in other words, we should, feel, we should feel much better about the fact that we can't actually come up with a specific formula because Gina McCarthy gets together with Barack Obama and his advisors and comes up with a subjective figure that we're supposed to say is accurate. Okay, I, I want to learn more about this because it's hard for me to even start expressing how outrageous I think this, this kind of measurement is. But where, where can, first of all, where, where can I learn more uh, about this? Where is this policy documented? Okay, you can uh, Google search or Bing search your preference. Uh, you can research my name, James Taylor, Heartland, and then McCarthy, Gina McCarthy. And uh, you should see uh, I wrote two or three articles on this topic uh, right at the time, within a day or two of the conference. So you can see the, uh, the back and forth in my question and answer with her. And then you'll see a couple other articles in which I spell out the absurdity of this EPA uh, formula or lack of formula for determining uh, the cost benefit, more benefit than cost of a life saved. And I also document how other federal agencies uh, place their estimates of the value of a life saved as lower than EPA. Also, it's, it's interesting that uh, this $9.1 million in an asserted benefit of a life saved, uh, this isn't something that you know, EPA has always held to. Under the Bush administration, it was significantly less. And I don't have the number right in front of me, but I believe in the Bush administration it was approximately $6.8 million was the asserted value. Yes, indeed, $6.8 million. And then under the Obama administration, they just suddenly realized, well, it's not worth $6.8 million. It's worth $9.1 million without giving any justification for this numerically. I mean, I have to think about it in what context it, it makes sense for the government to even have such a number versus you know, just defining a certain threshold as this violates rights or this doesn't. But it's worth noting that I believe the average lifetime productivity of an American is $1.3 million. So that means the entire effort needed to support a life is $1.3 million. And if you're if you're using these kinds of numbers, like what's, what's the harm of using 9 million? If you're using these numbers to justify policies that destroy productivity, you're preventing that American from actually making the money, even more money to improve his life on the idea that, oh, it's $9 million if my life is 10 days short. Well, okay, so if I eat a cheeseburger today, all other things being equal, my life is short, I just cost myself $9 million. Well, and, and you nailed it right on the head. If EPA were saving the life of someone right at birth, perhaps they can make the argument that they are, uh, you know, safeguarding $1.3 million in economic output and activity, et cetera. But when they come up with $9.1 million, yeah, the, the average American doesn't earn anywhere near that. It's a subjective life value estimate. And when you ask people how much is it worth not to die, well, of course they're going to come up with large numbers of numbers that they can't even afford. And that's really, that really gets to the heart of every time when EPA releases a new restriction, rule, regulation, imposition on the American economy, and they claim that it's going to generate X dollars in economic benefit. Keep in mind, one, it's not economic benefit. 
its subjective value, and two, the number is grossly inflated, far beyond anything which can be even remotely reasonably justified. And you might as well just wave a magic wand, throw some pixie dust out there, and come up with a number that you know will be larger than the costs of the rules and restrictions. And that's how you get yet another restriction on ozone that EPA is proposing, that EPA by its own numbers, which are likely underselling the costs, is going to cost $90 billion. That's, nine, that's per year. That's $900 per household per year. That is a significant chunk of the, Ameri- of the average American household's annual income. And this is just to have one more in an incremental string of restrictions. Is it really worth that? By EPA's numbers, they say not only is it worth it, we're benefiting the American economy. And in fact, I posed this question. I mentioned earlier my meeting uh, at a state legislative conference with EPA officials when they said they've never made an error. And when they talked about how every single regulation they've ever imposed has improved, has added value to the American economy, I said, well, then by your logic, all we need to do to ensure ourselves that all of us will live on America's rich and famous with yachts and you know, beachfront estates is simply to have EPA come up with more and more reasons to regulate and restrict us, and then we'll regulate, will EPA regulate and restrict us into obscene wealth. And he said, well, essentially, everything we've ever done adds wealth. So, yes, if we have more EPA rules and restrictions, we'll become a wealthier society. That's just silly. That's just silly. There, there may be trade-offs that are worthwhile to, you know, to, to, to keep pollution in check, to reduce emissions, etc. But they do not add economic benefits. They do not create wealth in and of themselves. It's interesting because we had another Taylor on the program, Jerry Taylor, whom I think you're very familiar with. And, yes, indeed, uh, my brother. Yeah, and he, we were talking about decision... I forget, I, I don't want to ascribe anything to him because it was a while back, but I just remember thinking that and talking about who should make these kinds of decisions. One benefit of more local decision-making is that these, I think it's more likely that these things actually get discussed. And I think one of the things coming out here is that that the issues are not discussed and, and as a result, people, well, as a result, bad policies are made, but also people have just a completely distorted view. They just think, in effect, the EPA discovered a new law of physics and is implementing it. Uh, versus just the amazing amount of, of arbitrariness and, and even just lack of common sense. Right, and, and there's a common misconception that without the United States Environmental Protection Agency that there would be no environmental safeguards in the nation, but each and every state in the nation has their own equivalent of the EPA, their own equivalent of EPA's rules and restrictions. Many of them are more demanding, more exacting, even than EPA's rules and restrictions. And you'll often have the environmental activists say that, well, even so, without a central federal EPA, we would have a race to the bottom in terms of states selling out their environment uh, for economic value. Well, really what we have now is a race to ignorance where we have these rules and regulations that are tremendously costly in which they can't even justify the restrictions themselves. Keep in mind that, you know, who who are the folks that set up in life early in their life and say, I want to become an environmental scientist and work for the EPA? These are folks who believe that we have, they have a predisposition to believing that we need to restrict emissions, restrict the economy, and have, uh, you know, safeguards on the environment that are above and beyond what most normal people think. But regardless, the you know, people in the various states, nobody wants to have the horrendously polluted environments. People are still going to make it. There's nothing that says at the state level people all of a sudden have different values and desire different things than they do at the federal, at the federal level. What we have when we have a more uh, a state-centered approach is we have environmental protection officials who are more in touch, more in tune 
with what's going on in the ground in the various states and are more reactive and responsive to the needs and concerns of citizens. And they're also more likely to understand that these rules and restrictions come at a cost. Sometimes the cost may be justified, but sometimes they don't. And if it's state-specific, local-specific, you're more likely to have a more realistic review, comparison, analysis of the cost versus benefits rather than just saying, oh, $90 billion for our nation. Well, what's $90 billion? Look at our budget deficit anyway. And I think that's troubling. All right, I want to switch subjects to something that the Heartland Institute has become, uh, well, in my mind, famous for, and some people's minds, I think, unfortunately, infamous for, uh, which is its, its activity on the global warming slash climate change slash climate disruption slash whatever vague and misleading term that opponents of fossil fuels can come up with at the moment. Um, and I want to start out by reading just a little excerpt from an article by Joe Bast, who runs the Heartland Institute. Uh, I thought this was really great and, and I think highlighted a lot of the courage involved here. And the article, which we'll link to on the site, is called Advice to a Libertarian Physicist on the Climate Policy Debate. Uh, and he says, a friend recently sent me a short PowerPoint presentation dated 2007 by a self-described libertarian physicist. The presentation warned that libertarians shouldn't be eager to argue the science of global warming since it is at least plausible and instead focus on whether CO2 emission must be limited by government. And then I'll just go to his, his, uh, his conclusion. Um, you know, here at the Heartland Institute, we have frequently debated the wisdom or lack of wisdom of taking the science seriously. Most free market think tanks don't, but failing to do so rendered them irrelevant in what is arguably the biggest pol public policy debate of our lifetimes. We decided not to debate, quote, what should be done about global warming, unquote. We looked under the hood at the science touted by the other side and found it to be utterly unpersuasive. So we set out to persuade the public and their elected representatives that global warming is not a crisis and needs neither a government solution nor a private property solution. Opinion polls and political outcomes in recent years show we were remarkably successful. And this is the, the line that stood with me. Maybe a libertarian think tank shouldn't have taken up this task, but as I looked around seven years ago, and as I looked around every year since, I saw nobody else willing to do it. And just, just on my own small scale, running a small group that comments on this issue all the time, um, both you know having scientists comment on it, but also just people with common sense. This struck me as this is, we all have an obligation as citizens to, if, if we're told that something is scientific and needs to be forced down our throats to examine and use common sense. And if we think there's something wrong, we should speak up. And I think it's great that the Heartland Institute spoke up. So, so thank you for that. And can you tell us a little bit about the story of how you got involved? Sure, thanks. And I appreciate uh, those kind words, Alex. When I joined the Heartland Institute in 2001, uh, the global warming issue still hadn't become the central environmental issue that it became by the mid to latter part of last decade. But as the issue, well, first of all, looking at the issue, um, if, 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 if humans are destroying the planet, if we're setting up a condition through carbon dioxide emissions or whatever else in which it's going to substantially uh, worsen the human condition through, you know, through changes in climate, well, then, of course, we should do something about it to, to the extent that we can, to the extent that it makes sense. Now, the solutions that were provided were solutions that were going to raise energy costs, restrict economic freedom, uh, restrict even our national uh, freedom. Our, we had to have the United Nations stepping in and overseeing everything. And if 
if it's necessary, if, if the asserted harm is going to be the destruction of the planet, then perhaps even those uh, asserted solutions will be justified. But before we just sign on and say, sure, because some environmental activist group or some scientists who have a history of supporting these environmental causes say so, let's, let's take a look to make sure that it makes sense. And when you dig into the data, when you talk to scientists across the board, not just the ones that are put forward by the media, you see that the evidence does not support the assertions that humans are causing a global warming crisis. And we can certainly get into the science more in depth in a minute. But in terms of Heartland Institute's uh, uh, activities with this, as time went by, we decided rather than as many other think tanks said, well, look, um, the science is, you know, we're losing the battle of public opinion on the science. We were told that the more that we dispute the science because everyone seems to believe global warming is happening and it's a crisis and we need to do something, the more that we say no, the more that we're undercutting our own credibility across the board on a variety of issues. So what we should do is come up with the most market-friendly solutions to restricting carbon dioxide emissions that we can. Well, they're still going to cause tremendous economic damage, and we're still going to be giving up a lot of our freedoms and liberty. And we said no. Even within the Heartland Institute, we had that debate. Is it worth it? Because up until about 2007 or so, public opinion polling uh, showed that the American public strongly believed we needed to do something. And if you were against it, then you were an outlier. Even among legislators, politicians, uh, not only could we not get the time of day presenting the actual science to Democratic legislators, we had a very difficult time getting Republicans to agree with us. In fact, back in about 2007, I believe it was, uh, I had a meeting, a scientist and I, a very prominent climate scientist and I had a meeting with the top staffers of a Republican governor uh, who ran for president not too long ago. And after walking through the scientific case, the staffer said, the governor doesn't disagree with anything you say. However, he realizes that people want him to act, and he would rather act from the lead than from the back. So what he would like from you, if you would like to help out, is to come up with the most cost-effective ways to impose these restrictions. Well, of course, since then, you know, that I, I, think, I think the biggest, the biggest turnaround point in this debate was Al Gore filming his movie, An Inconvenient Truth. It was very Hollywoodgenic so to speak. It was well produced if you're a Hollywood producer. But by, by now having specific claims and assertions that people could point out how silly they were, people began to realize, wait a second, we've been sold a faulty bill of goods. Since that time, since 2007, 2008, public opinion has changed. And I, I'm, I'm glad to see that we were vindicated because the argument I was making within Heartland and elsewhere is the American people are not stupid. And not only are the American people not stupid, but in today's day and age, as opposed to 30 years ago, we have the internet. People can look up these studies for themselves. We have cable television. We have talk radio. We have all sorts of websites where scientists themselves post the data and the interpretations. The truth will win out. And I believe the truth has won out. And I think that's what is driving the global warming activists crazy is the fact that they thought that they were going to prevail on this issue. And by prevailing, I mean imposing these restrictions on our economy, having this government-centered both nationally and internationally program to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. But now the momentum has shifted away. And I'm very happy, I'm very proud of the fact that at the Heartland Institute, we were there at the very beginning. We believed in the American people. We believed in sound science from the start. And really, that's all we want to do is make sure that people have the best possible, the most accurate information on which to make decisions. And I think if they do, they're going to agree with us that these proposed solutions are not justified and would impose a tremendous negative cost on the American economy and on our freedoms. 
So I went to one of the conferences a couple of years ago in, in DC, and then I've watched many of the clips online. And one thing that's that's striking about them, which is the opposite of what you would suspect if you only read media reports, is that in the Heartland presentations, you can actually understand what they're talking about, and they actually explain themselves. Versus if you watch a lecture by Michael Mann, it's just half intimidation and and complete distortion uh, of the other side. Where can where can people watch watch these videos because there, there's just a lot of great stuff. Yes, if you go to heartsland.org, uh, we do post a video uh, from many of the sessions of our prior uh, climate conferences. And it's real interesting how sometimes you can have silver linings how, uh, you know, of clouds, how you can make lemonade out of lemons. The fact that the media is so much behaving as a lapdog for the environmental activists, the fact that the, you know, the scientists who are on the other side of the issue are so full of themselves and have the media backing them up, means that they don't believe they need to explain why they're coming to certain conclusions. And I think part of it is because they know if they do, I mean, we can take it apart. There's a reason why uh, skeptical scientists are always more than willing to have a public presentation and debate on the topic, and the alarmists, by and large, stay away from it. I mean, if I had science on my side, and I believe I do, then I would be chomping at the bit to publicly debate folks on the other side, as I am. Uh, but you know, I mean, that this is a way. If they believe the science is so so much on their side, then they can they can put us down to rest once and for all by mopping the floor in a debate versus skeptics. But they can't do it, and they don't do it. So anyway, we have the uh, the presentations, and and because of that background, the scientists explain themselves well. They explain, look, here's what you hear. Here's the science that says otherwise, and it makes it easier for people to understand. So it's kind of making lemonade from lemons in the sense that we have to fight this uphill media battle. Uh, but at the same time, it, it, it forces us to focus our message, to refine our message, to make sure that we're backing everything up because we know we're going to be scrutinized. And therefore, we're not going to have the embarrassment that the alarmists often have when, for example, right now, when we have a cold front you know, this past month, we had the, the polar vortex. Well, we had the United Nations intergovernmental panel on climate change, their most recent report said that we should see fewer of these. Then when we have this strong cold front come through, you have half the, half the global warming alarmists saying, well, this is only a rare event, so it doesn't mean anything. And then you have the other half saying, well, this is what we always predicted. Global warming causes more frequent and severe cold fronts. And then the public, of course, hears the alarmists saying one thing and then saying another thing and then being contradicted by their own report. So they, you know, they, they don't have the, the imperative to actually be consistent in what they're saying because the, you know, the media just gives them a pass. But for people who are informed, who want to look at the information, uh, you know, they, they see that they say one thing, then they say another, and the facts contradict them. And that's why I believe public opinion is changing, is turning, has turned, and now uh, supports uh, a more realist point of view on climate science. Yeah, the vortex, I think, is interesting in, in many ways, uh, just the, in part because their actual theory, I think, is wrong but more sophisticated than the version they present commonly, which is in effect, whenever it's hot, it's the fault of you using uh, fossil fuels. And they, but they lo there's this power of, oh, let's connect it to this extreme event, particularly if the event seems at all related to heat. And, but then when people say, oh, well, it's cold, so whatever happened to global warming, their response is, oh, you can't tie an isolated weather event. That has nothing to do with trend. And yet they're the ones who set that whole uh, false paradigm up uh, in the first place. So it's, it's another example of just even on the not really explaining things and treating people as dupes and trying to um, intimidate them instead of 
explaining your view, explaining the evidence, explaining any counter evidence, explaining uncertainty. So again, uh, definitely everyone check out heartland.org because there's it's one, one of the best sources and, and I like the presentations in part because you've got a lot of really good visuals. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that. And you really hit the nail on the head regarding the polar vortex. I'm going to do the global warming alarmists a favor and make their best argument for them. And that is simply this. As the planet warms, we're still going to have cold fronts. They're going to occur less frequently. So when we have it, it doesn't mean global warming is not occurring. Uh, but what they do, instead of admitting something that really isn't such a big admission, they're so, they're so tuned into always having to say everything is caused by global warming, they instead turn around and say global warming causes cold temperatures. And then they just shoot themselves in the foot in terms of their credibility because their own Internet, uh, United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report says it will get fewer cold fronts uh, of less extreme uh, strength and duration. And what's really important on this is that, first of all, we know that we do see fewer of these extreme cold outbreaks, and these are good things. Everyone thinks that anything that happens is caused by humans must be bad, but that's not the case at all. More people, we talked at the beginning of this uh, conversation about mortality. Well, more people die, significantly more people die as a result of cold weather and cold-related causes than warm weather. Mortality in the United States and globally is substantially higher during the hot summer months uh, excuse me, during the cold winter months than during the hot summer months. When we have fewer outbreaks of extreme cold, we're going to save lives. And that's something that, uh, that, that gets lost in the discussion because people want to say anything that happens, one is caused by global warming and two must be bad. But in reality, having fewer of these cold outbreaks is beneficial to human health and welfare. Well, and the, po the point at the beginning, I think in particular, is, is that you said that the idea that if it's caused by man, it's it's bad, which is is definitely a premise of environmentalism that is is very valuable to expose because it certainly doesn't stand scrutiny if your concern uh, is human life to have this to have this animus against any impact on his surroundings by man since he he survives by by impacting his surroundings and I think this is just another element of why a public debate is is so valuable because. Uh, these aren't these aren't simple issues. They're they're all sorts of integrated uh, concerns, and then there are all sorts of challenges in using the right methodology and not not importing unwarranted assumptions. And the unwarranted assumption that well, if man impacts climate, it must be bad, let alone catastrophic, is completely baseless. And yet, almost everyone who hears oh man caused climate change thinks oh that must be really bad. We gotta we gotta whatever we need to do, we have to do to stop it. Right, and, uh, and you mentioned the, uh, the need for debate on this topic, and I encourage listeners to do a Google search. You can Google search the terms Taylor, Debate, Tallahassee, and you'll see what happens when some of these global warming activists finally do agree to a debate. Back uh, last January, a year ago, uh, one of Al Gore's trained presenters, a, a faculty member at the Florida State University, uh, debated me in Tallahassee on this very topic, and it's been filmed, it's been posted on the Internet, and you will see what happens when we have this debate. And, and I'm confident enough to say that, uh, uh, well, e even even the, uh, the the alarmist own friends acknowledge on the internet. Well, okay, well this wasn't fair because Taylor's a trained uh, debater, yeah. well, as if an Al Gore trained presenter isn't. Uh, but also when you talk about the uh, the benefits or, or you know how human impacts on the environment aren't necessarily a bad thing, we look at for example agricultural output. Carbon dioxide is what uh, is what people pump into greenhouses to enhance plant growth. We know that as carbon dioxide levels have increased in the atmosphere 
and as we've had an extension of growing seasons because of longer summers, shorter winters, and with global warming, something you don't often hear in the media, is that we've had a gradual beneficial increase in rainfall and soil moisture at a global level. All these things have come together so that global crop production has tripled during the past 40 years. I mean, that's fantastic. We have growing numbers of people, yet we have a growing ability to feed these people. Just because humans have caused something, just because humans are the source of the increase in carbon dioxide emissions, doesn't mean that by tinkering with what otherwise would have been the case, it's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's a great point. I'm glad, glad to hear uh, Heartland making it. Now, uh, tell us about uh, fake gate because I mean I, I studied this quite a bit, but I don't think most people are aware of it. I think it's 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 very important and and very revealing. All those I mean, very outrageous. I think fundamentally. Okay, and and, and let me walk you through this sort of chronologically. Peter Glick, his name is spelled G L E I C K. Sounds uh, it looks like Gleek or Glick, but it's Glick. Peter Glick uh, uh, became very antagonistic to my weekly column that I write for Forbes.com on global warming issues. And he and I had a back and forth going on in the columns because he would write one occasionally or post in the comments. And I was just cleaning his clock. He's a, he's a scientist specializing in water issues. He's an environmental activist. And apparently frustrated with this, uh, he, uh, he set up an email account that was almost identical to one of our board members, and then he claimed to be that board member and requested all of our internal documents. Basically, his thought process seemed to be that this would show that we're just bought and paid for by big energy companies, and even we realized that, that what we're saying is not true. Well, the documents that he obtained, there was nothing embarrassing in them whatsoever, so then he released them along with a fraudulent document that was just fraudulent on its, on its surface, on its face, claiming that, you know, all the things that Peter Glick said or thought that we were doing, that we're just taking money for, you know, selling things that we don't believe in, et cetera. That fake document was quickly exposed. Glick claimed he didn't write it himself. He got it from some anonymous source, and he doesn't even know who it is. I think it's pretty clear Glick wrote it himself. And, you know, here's the thing that's really interesting. Two things really interesting. Number one, when you engage in such fraudulent activity because you believe that you're right, when you impersonate somebody, when you, when you lie, when you cheat, when you write up fraudulent documents, or at the very least, disseminate them, how are we supposed to take your scientific research credible, especially when everything that you write about seems to indicate that we're facing this human-caused environmental crisis? Secondly, what's really interesting, Glick was so worked up about our debate, and he was making such a fuss, and I was slapping him down quite well. Uh, we have an annual fundraising dinner, our largest donors, we have the media there, etc. We invited Peter Glick to debate me at our annual fundraising dinner. If Peter Glick were so, so convinced that he was right on the topic, all he'd have to do is show up, mop the floor with me in a debate, and we'd never get funded again. I mean, that's pretty simple. I would love to have that opportunity at the Sierra Club. Peter Glick turned that, uh, turned that invitation down, and then within days launched his activity to steal under fraudulent pretenses our documents. Uh, that's amazing. I didn't, didn't know that. That's, yeah, absolutely. That's not. I mean, I, I, I am also a professional debater. That to just tell people that's 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 a non-trivial risk to take. I mean, of course, you, know, you, you have good reason to think you win, but debating is not easy. And and to invite somebody to a fundraiser with that on the line, that that takes our confidence. Our board members, our largest donors, the media. Oh, yeah. All he have to do is score a decisive victory, and we're done. On and who knows topic. what he'll that's say? I mean, even even it's you know he could say something off topic. That would be. I mean it. That's a real risk, and if man, if if 
like if I got the, I've debated Bill McKibben before, but if 350.org invent, well, I don't know if I'd have any, those board members would, I mean, if I wanted to do something, if I thought I could do something about 350.org and, you know, I, w I would go to their, uh, their board. So yeah, that, that's super revealing that he turned that down in favor of just fabricating something. Right. And then just within days, then launched his fraudulent campaign. I mean, that's, that just tells you everything about the character of the person the uh, the uh, the accuracy or at least the credibility of what he purports to uh, to write about in, in his studies, and how much you know lack of confidence he has in his ability to win a debate on the topic, and he's somebody that uh, that prides himself on picking fights, starting debates with people. So I I think most importantly of all, it shows that the science is not what the media says it is. It's not what the alarmists say it is. They realize that uh, that they face an uphill battle if they try to take someone on in a in a you know a legitimate debate on the science. Now I was I was browsing the web or doing something a couple of months ago, and I noticed that Glick still has an active Twitter following, and I tweeted. Peter Glick still has an active Twitter following, shows the moral standards of the the climate Scientologists, which is what I call the people who intimidate, based on this stuff, and. And uh, well, then he said that he said that I was libeling him and this kind of thing. But I'm I'm surprised that that that's really that really should not be. I mean, you would think that they would have at least the PR good sense to communicate him instead of just oh it's uh, he oh he deeply regrets it. So we all make mistakes. Well, well it's a pretty sad statement uh, that you have folks. Uh, what's his group, the Pacific Institute or something like that, that retained him as president even after it came out, even after he admitted that he engaged in this fraudulent activity of impersonating a board member, of getting documents under false pretenses, of releasing a document uh, that we you know, have shown is, is not true. But the thing is, you have folks that, that you, know, you talk about you know, climate Scientologists, and I think you hit it on the head there, because for, for these folks, it's all about this absolute certainty that they're right on the topic. And whatever means justify the ends of making sure that we don't destroy the planet through global warming. So Peter Glick, by engaging in this unethical, dishonest behavior, actually raised and you know, enhanced his standing among a substantial portion of the environmental activist crowd. I mean, that, that is, if anything, has made him a bigger uh, you know, cult hero than he was before. Pretty sad. Yeah. Well, to to move on to better things, uh, you've already mentioned the, the Heartland uh, website, but um, you can mention that again and just give listeners any other resources for how they can learn more about you, how they can learn more about Heartland, how they can support Heartland. Sure. I appreciate that. Heartland.org. Very simple. Uh, and we also have news.heartland.org where we post our daily updates on a variety of topics, including energy and environment issues and global warming. I have a personal website, jamestaylorpolicy.com. That's all one word, jamestaylorpolicy.com. There's some very good scientific sites if you want to get more into the science itself. You can go to wattsupwiththat.com. That's W-A-T-T-S, wattsupwiththat.com. That would be one that I would highly recommend. Uh, meteorologist Anthony Watts updates several articles daily with the uh, latest in the global warming debate. And that will link you to a variety of other websites. There's so many good ones. Climatedepot.com is another one. Yeah, we 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 uh, frequent those for sure. Uh, well, James, I want, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and also just for for the great work at the Heartland Institute. I'm uh, I'm a big fan, and uh, I'll do whatever I can to support you guys going forward. 
Well, thank you for the opportunity, and thank you for the kind words, Alex. I think you do a great job, and it's an honor to be on your show. Thanks again to James Taylor for coming on the show. Uh, I got to say most of what I wanted to say during the the discussion. I'll just repeat a theme that I've I've talked about a couple of times in the show, which is that the issue of fossil fuels and championing fossil fuels in the face of environmentalist opposition, really anti-industrial, anti-technology opposition, with this rationalization of concern for climate. This is a real issue, as in this is the kind of thing that people fought about in history, and there's a right side and there's a wrong side. And it's important to figure out, and there are sides in the middle, I should say, but it's an issue where there is real right and wrong and where there there are consequences that can be very good and consequences that can be very bad, depending on what we choose. And we are we are in the thick of it. It's a real it's a real issue. It's it's a big issue, and thus it's it's crucially important to be informed. I think it's crucially important to support those who are doing the right thing. And we're fortunate enough on this program to have, I think, many heroes of this um, of this battle. We've had Richard Lindzen. We've had Pat Michaels, we've had Ross McKittrick, and I think the Heartland Institute belongs uh, right up there. So um, definitely, definitely check out their stuff. Um, I'd also say Craig Idso, who we've had, and I don't want to forget anyone else, but he, I think he and his organization have done amazing work uh, as well. Um, so definitely when you see these people, support them, and, and there are a number of ways you, you can support them. You can... Uh, but for sure, you can you can write them individually, tell them that you appreciate their work, read their work, uh, spread their work, and if you so choose, for sure you can uh, contribute to their organizations. These are these are, I mean, some some of them are academics, but um, you know some of them have nonprofit organizations, and those are always looking for funding. And I think many of these. Um, you know, those are those are good investments. These these organizations are doing really really good things. So thanks to them, and and let's make sure that we keep supporting them. Now, as far as uh, other things to support with with CIP, we don't want a donation, but we do want you to follow all of our stuff and spread it around. So make sure to get with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels. You can buy a t-shirt or a hundred or a thousand at I love fossil fuels, uh, com. Uh, definitely you can check out fossil fuels, improve the planet at amazon.com. You can buy any number of, of those, or you can buy them at industrialprogress.com, our website. Most important thing, make sure you're on our newsletter. Uh, that goes out every week. That'll keep you up to date on everything, give you lots and lots of good info. And um, besides that, again, just thanks, thanks to the Heartland Institute, thanks to everyone who who does the right thing on the fossil fuel issue. So next week we'll we will be back with another great guest and another great topic. And wow, I forgot my usual refrain of if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Now we're really done. So until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. 
the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.